Let's check in. We'll just, we'll just dive right in here. It says this in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, what sayings? What, what's Matthew referring to? Well, he's talking about what we've looked at the last number of weeks, the Olivet Discourse, this sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And when Matthew tells you this, it's interesting. He says that he Jesus finished saying these things. It marks a turning point in Matthew's gospel. This is actually the fifth time in Matthew's gospel where he uses this line. Jesus finished saying this. And then he moves on to another section. And so this is really the, the end, the conclusion of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry. It ends with that Olivet Discourse. And now... Uh, the story moves on in the Passion Week as we approach the cross. And so again, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So two events Jesus tells his disciples that are going to happen in the next couple of days. The first is this, it was the Passover. The Passover was approaching. The Passover for the Jewish people is one of the highlights of their calendar year. It, it's a time where they celebrate the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And since the first Passover, remember the first Passover <clears throat> uh, from instructions from the Lord and through Moses that, that each household was to take a lamb, that they were to sacrifice that lamb as an offering to the Lord and they were to collect the blood and they were to put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their home and the angel of death would pass over their home. They would be protected as they were covered by the blood of the lamb. And so Passover, since that time, Passover was celebrated with the annual sacrifice of a lamb and this festival in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish historian, Josephus, says that at the time of Jesus, they were slaughtering at Passover 250,000 lambs in Jerusalem. I just find that, that just is astonishing to me. The law actually is this from the Old Testament, that one had to be sacrificed for every 10 people. So let's say, you know, you didn't have a family context. Well, you could kind of gather with 10 people and one lamb would be enough for, for 10. And so that tells us that in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, you have at least two and a half million people there if there's two, 250,000 lambs being sacrificed. And so it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Now, when you think about it, really, this is, in terms of the true meaning of Passover, this is it right here. This is the final Passover, really, in the tradition of Passover. Because Jesus is going to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, sins of the world. He's going to give his life for the redemption of mankind. And so Jesus says in the next two days, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be Passover. And then he says what also laid ahead of them was his crucifixion. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Check out verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst, amongst the people. So let's just talk about the high priest for a minute here. The high priest, that was, we, we know where that comes from, who the first high priest was. It was Moses' brother Aaron and the the role of high priest was passed down from father to son through the Levitical line, the, the Levite line of Aaron's family. But what had happened was this, that when the Romans came to power and they got control over the land of Israel, they began to hand out and determine who would take the position of high priest. They'd hand it out to a Levite family, but they really controlled who that was. And what happened was that the high priest became a political puppet, so to speak. You know, he was just a middleman between Israel and Rome many times when he was supposed to be the middleman between who? God and his people. He, he used his position for power in, in the nation. And so Caiaphas, who's listed here, was actually the son of Annas. And Annas was the high priest, but Annas had given up the role of high priest to his son Caiaphas. And there was a reason why. 
And it was this, is that Annas' family controlled the sales within the temple. He had four other sons besides Caiaphas. And they ran all of the sales of the, the lambs and all the things that were happening in the temple. And it was a, a great position for their family. And so, so, so Annas, rather than jeopardize the family business, made sure he just practiced some nepotism and he handed off the high priestly role after he had served for a time into the hands of his son. And that way their family could control everything that was going on in the temple. So when you think about it, think about Jesus coming in, into the temple mount, kicking over the tables, doing his whole thing, driving out the money changers and those who were buying and selling in the temple courts. Jesus had interfered specifically with the the family business of the high priest. He, he ticked off the wrong people. I mean, the, the people of Israel, many of them were following him. But in his actions, he, he was endangering the, the Jewish-Roman relationship and the nice balance that the high priest was helping organize. He was messing with the bottom line of the high priest's family business. And so you can well imagine... Just the, the number of reasons that were stacking up against Jesus and why this family wanted to get rid of him. But it was Passover time. And as Matthew tells us, as they gather secretly here and they begin to plot how they're going to stealthily kill Jesus, they decided that they would wait until after Passover. Because all these millions of people were in the city and it was like, we don't want to cause an uproar at this time. So we'll wait until after Passover. But God, the father had a different plan, didn't he? See, his calendar was all lining up no matter what the high priest wanted to do. The son of God, Jesus was going to give his life as a sacrifice. He was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And Passover was the father's timetable. It was his calendar, not theirs that would determine when Jesus' life was taken. And so as they planned, uh, they thought, we'll wait until after the Passover festival. But as we're going to see here, Judas is going to serve as a conduit to just move things forward and provide the opportunity that they were looking for. Look at verse 6. It says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, Simon... Uh, when you think of Simon, I think he's obviously a man who had been healed by Jesus. Of course, of course Bethany was the hometown of uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha and this man, Simon. Some believe that Simon was maybe their father or that possibly he was uh, Martha's husband. But it says in, in verse 7, Jesus is, or verse 6, he's in their home. And then verse 7, in that home, a woman came up to them, up to him with an alabaster flask full of very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. The Gospel of John tells us who this woman was. It was uh, Mary, the sister of Martha. Now Mary, in the scriptures, she's a worshiper. She's a worshiper. Three times that she is mentioned, all three times that she is mentioned in the gospel accounts, and when she comes before Jesus, she takes a position of worship at his feet. You remember the time when Martha was slaving away in the kitchen, and she was preparing food and getting things ready for all their guests, and she came and she began to complain to Jesus. She said, you know, here I am. I'm striving and working away here in the kitchen, and my sister is sitting at your feet. And Jesus actually corrected Martha. He said, your sister has chosen what's better, to sit at my feet. Or you remember when Lazarus passed away and he was buried in the tomb in Bethany. And finally, when Jesus came to the city and the community of Bethany and Lazarus had already been in that tomb for a number of days, as he came uh, walking into town, Mary, the gospels tell us, came running to him and she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then this is the third time that we read about Mary in the gospel accounts right here. And, and John's gospel actually tells us that she, she took that alabaster jar and she, she broke it. Mark says she broke it. And John says she poured it over Jesus' head. And then as, it oil, as the oil ran down him, she took her hair and 
she washed his feet with her hair. The perfume, the Gospels tells us, was worth about a year's wages. And I think about that picture, you know, this woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair. This is a pretty intimate picture. It was likely uh, her dowry, a, a full year's salary. And her dowry was the gift that she as a bride would have given to the man who would be her husband at her marriage. You, know, you think about it, it's like, well, I wonder how long she had this ointment. I wonder how she paid for it, a year's worth of salary. All those things you can only speculate on. But the, the thing that, that we should see in this, this picture is as Mary uh, broke this oil over Jesus and let it be poured out and washed his feet with her hair was that, that Mary was very invested in her worship of Jesus. This was an act of worship for the Lord that she loved. Look at what verse 8 says. It says, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, John's gospel actually tells us who was the leader of the indignation and who was most indignant. It was Judas. It was Judas. He called Mary's worship a waste. I mean, think about that for a minute. You know, he says, you could have done something far more practical, like, like helping the poor. And when you think about Judas, here's the thing about Judas. Judas was already helping himself to the disciples' common purse. The money that they shared communally with one another. He handled that money and he was putting his own fingers into that purse. And it seems to suggest here that, the, that this indignation that he had against Mary really moved forward his plan of betrayal against Jesus. But the truth is, is that Judas had already become an active betrayer of the ministry and mission of Jesus. It started when he began to get his fingers into the money that should have been going out to the poor already. And I guess with mis, each misappropriation, it just became easier for him to put a price tag on Jesus' head. To sell Jesus. You know, I would say this. Um, people, that, people that don't love God, people that don't love Jesus, always see worship of Jesus as a waste. I, I'll give you an example from my own life. You know, we had our, our, our year-end hockey team party last week and we were talking about some upcoming events and someone said, oh yeah, I guess you can't come, it's Sunday. And I'm like thinking to myself, yeah, like that's no burden to me. Like I'd rather pick the worship of Jesus than be involved in the event that's going on. And, and the reality is, is that person sees the worship of Jesus as a waste, a waste of time, a waste of energy. That person said to me, uh, I'm having my church tonight when I go home and I watch the hockey game. And hey, we were having a conversation and, and, and that's okay. They clearly recognize that and we've been having cool talks about the Lord. But the point is this, is Judas fell into that class of people who saw the worship of Jesus as a waste as Mary poured out this, this gift. Mark's gospel, like I mentioned, tells us that she, she broke the flask to pour out the ointment, the perfume. You know, the best worship in your life, it flows from your brokenness. The place where God has met you in your hurt and in your pain. That place where when you come to the end of yourself and you humble yourself from the Lord and from your brokenness, you begin to pour out your worship to the Lord. You think about the most broken area of your life. God wants that place to be the center of your worship with him. You know, true worship, Mary's worship cost her a year's salary. That's incredible. And true worship is costly. It cost Mary the, the perfume. It cost her what was probably her dowry, which is an incredible picture. You, know, you think about your worship. What does is, what is worship cost us this morning? You know, this week I got a, 
a Facebook uh, link to one, one of the Indian fellows that after the trip to India, we've made uh, just become friends on Facebook. And so I've been seeing what he's posting. And he posted this week, he said, can you pray for, uh, it was just a general post, can you pray for one of our pastors? It was one of the guys that was at our conference in Delhi. Because he said on Sunday, they baptized nine Hindus into the Christian faith. After church, he was arrested and he was taken to the jail and they charged him. And they actually, he actually had this post for like, it was like called persecution watch. It was like a, a hotline that Indians could call if they were facing persecution in their villages because he had really done nothing wrong. He was just pastoring and leading the church. And, and so the, the request was pray, pray that God will just lead him out of this situation. Worshiping Jesus costs something for him. And the question maybe for us is what does it cost us to worship? What's our biggest fear? What people will think? You know, I wonder if Mary thought that as she was coming to do this act to pour out her, her perfume upon Jesus. I wonder what these people are going to think about me. I wonder how the disciples will perceive me as I just go for it in terms of worshiping Jesus. You know, one of the areas I just feel challenged in is to just, in worship, get over myself. Get over yourself. And just worship the Lord with abandon and from your heart. You know, as Mary did that, her, her worship was misunderstood. That's often the truth about worship too, that it's often misunderstood. There's always a Judas there who says, you should do something practical. Why don't you pick something more practical than that worship of Jesus? But I'll tell you what, you know, as, as Mary poured out that oil on Jesus and wiped his, his feet with her hair, she began to, she took on the fragrance of that oil. She took on the fragrance of Christ. And that's what worship does. It, it, tell, it causes you to take on the fragrance and the smell of Jesus in your life. John's gospel says that the entire home was filled with that fragrance. Don't you want your home to be filled with the fragrance of Jesus? Be a worshiper. And so as the disciples, and in particular Judas, take shots at what he called waste, a wasteful act, Jesus defends. Look at verse 10. He says, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I always love that last verse, that verse 13. Because every time you retell this story, you're fulfilling what Jesus said. That where the gospel is preached, this story will be told. You know, Jesus repeatedly told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. When we get there, I'm going to be crucified. I mean, we've seen this throughout the, the, the message of Matthew's gospel that he was laying this out clearly, clearly, clearly for a long time. And it seems like the disciples never really grasped what was going on. But I think here that we have a suggestion that there was someone who did grasp what Jesus was saying. The person who would always take the position at his feet to worship. And it was Mary. You normally in their culture, a body was anointed after burial. Yet Mary anointed Jesus before his burial. You remember that Joseph of Arimathea on Resurrection Sunday, he had 75 pounds of spices that he took to the tomb and he was going to anoint the body of Jesus because they didn't have time to do it on the, at the scramble of, of Passover and getting his body in the tomb. And so on the first day of the week, Joseph of Arimathea came with all of these spices to anoint the body of Jesus. What Joseph hadn't realized was this, is that the Lord had already seen that Jesus was anointed for his burial. It it's just that it happened beforehand. Why? Well, the word of God prophesied that the body of Jesus would not see corruption. And I think it's likely that Mary, in faith, came to realize 
Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He's telling us that. He'll be crucified and he's going to rise from the dead. Now, how, how did Mary come to understand that? Well, I think it's because she was a worshiper. See, revelation and worship are linked together. She sat at his feet and she understood the things that he was saying. And when you and I are at the feet of Jesus, it's simple. It's just this simple. You will understand and get things in regards to Jesus and his kingdom that other people won't. It's amazing what you'll see if you just take the time and you'll sit at the feet of the master. Check out verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So it's amazing when you just see Matthew contrasting the story of what happened in Bethany and Mary's worship and, and what Judas did. And it seems like the final act that motivated Judas was what he saw in Mary, what he called uh, wasteful, her worship. Do you know what the name Judas means? The name Judas means praise. Which is crazy when you think about it. We know Bible names and their meanings are so important. But who is it that praised Jesus? It was Mary, not Judas. You know the name Judas? What do you think? When the name Judas, when you hear the name Judas, I mean it's like, when's the last time you met someone named Judas? <laughs> or knew someone that named their child Judas? Now I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands or you know. If you're thinking about that for your child. Maybe not the best pick. But it should be a beautiful name because it means praise. But he ruined what is a beautiful name because when we hear the name Judas, what do we associate with? The man who betrayed Jesus. He's a tragic figure. I mean, he was a disciple. He was anointed an apostle. Judas was given power to preach and to heal the sick and to perform signs and wonders when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Judas was in that mix, out proclaiming the gospel and laying hands on people and seeing them healed. But in spite of all this, and this is a good warning, he wasn't a true believer. He wasn't a true man of faith. And when you think about Judas and you think about the tragedy of his story, you know, I want to say this. He's not a victim of his circumstances. He's not the passive tool of providence. I mean, it was prophesied that one of Jesus' closest followers would betray him, but that doesn't relieve Judas of the responsibility of the choices that he made in terms of Jesus. The chief priests, I mean, you think about them, they, they were content to wait until after Passover and their plot to kill Jesus. But Judas, when he came to them, it was just an opportunity that was too good to pass up. One of the 12, man. We got an in through one of the 12. One of the inside hand chosen men has made a decision to betray him. Willing to sell out. And he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And I don't understand why he did it, but this is for certain. For certain. Judas had every opportunity not to do so. Not to participate in that betrayal. Jesus even warned him in the upper room. Jesus washed his feet. Even at the Garden of Gethsemane when he put the kiss on Jesus' cheek, Jesus called him his friend. And Judas serves as a warning from us from the, from the scripture about pretending to serve Jesus. About pretending to serve him when your heart is far from him. Check out verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, Passover, we get mention of un, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. They're right on top of one another. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day festival that follows Passover. And so often in the scripture, we're in the mind, Jewish speak. They're blended into one, the Feast of pa- uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Jesus says, you head into the city and you'll find this man, he'll... He, uh, the other gospels say, say this, actually. They said, you, you'll go into the city and you'll find a man carrying a jar of, of water. And you go to that man and you ask him and then we'll go to his house and we'll celebrate the Passover. Now, you think, what? Walk into the city with a jar of water? Well, here's just the truth. Men didn't do that job in those days. That was women's work. And so when they saw a man walking with a jar of water, it would have stood out to them. And this man, he was some unnamed friend of Jesus. We're not given his name. He's a man who I would say he worked behind the scenes in the kingdom of God. He made the necessary preparations to help the disciples prepare for um, the Passover. He made his home available to King Jesus. And it's kind of cool that his name's not mentioned. You know, you might be one of those kind of servants. No fanfare. Not named, not maybe acknowledged, just serving behind the scenes, making things right for Jesus and his people, just serving away in your home. And I just think this man, he's, he's going to be rewarded in eternity. Just like each person that serves quietly behind the scenes will be rewarded. I think in heaven, probably rewarded really openly. Look at verse 20. When it was evening... He reclined at the table with the 12, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And and they were very sorrowful sorrowful, and began to say to him, say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, it's amazing to me as you read the, the gospel story here and you just consider that it wasn't apparent to the disciples whatsoever that Judas was the guy. They never, they never saw that. They saw no difference between how Jesus treated them and how Jesus treated Judas. That's an incredible testimony of Jesus' love. When Jesus said to them that one of their number would betray him, everyone, they just went around the table. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Nobody thought it was Judas. They, they all saw themselves as having the potential to betray him. Verse 23 He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. You know what's really telling in this story is that As they go around, Matthew tells us that everyone asked, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Am I the one, Lord? Until it was Judas' turn. Before Judas could ask, right at at the moment when he was about to dip his hand into the dish with Jesus, Jesus said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the hand of Judas was right there. And when all the others had asked, is it I, Lord? Judas couldn't call him Lord. He said, is it I, Rabbi? You know, and I just thinking on that, I bet Judas had never called him Lord. He'd probably always called him teacher, Rabbi. And even at the betrayal, is it I, Rabbi? You know, John tells us in his gospel that at the Passover table, as they were sitting there, that John, uh, the youngest of the 12, was sitting to Jesus' right. In that, in that context of their culture, they're, they're not sitting in chairs. They're probably leaning back on pillows around the table. And, 
It's another very intimate picture, but the scripture tells us that John was leaning against Jesus' chest as they were sharing that meal together. And Judas was close enough that when Jesus reached to grab some food from the table and to dip his hand, the hand of Judas could also reach and be right there. And I think that tells us that Judas, where John was on the right, Judas was probably right there in the honorable seat to Jesus' left around that table, sitting in the seat of honor. Jesus probably invited him to sit at that seat because Jesus loved Judas. Loved him even though he would betray him. Check out verse 26. Now as they were eating, <clears throat> Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. For this is my blood, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So it's after supper. When we put the story together, I think Judas has got up. He's, he's left. It's now Jesus with the 11. And Jesus institutes something new, the Lord's Supper. A new covenant in his blood. He took elements from the Passover feast, the unleavened bread and the cup. And he used them as a picture of his own death. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. The broken bread pictured his, his body that was broken for us. The cup pictures his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins, the forgiveness of sins. And at this supper with his disciples there, Jesus instituted a new covenant, we call it, a new testament, a new agreement between God and man. You remember the old covenant, what we call the old covenant, where that was instituted? It was instituted on Mount Sinai with Moses there, with Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And the Old Testament tells us in Exodus chapter 24 that when they had gone up Mount Sinai and they were there and the Lord was present with them, they had a meal with the Lord, which is an incredible picture. They saw God and they shared in his presence a meal with him. And by the blood of a sacrifice, God instituted a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. Now, who did they see? I mean, which person of the Trinity sat with them and shared a meal with them on top of Mount Sinai? Well, it was Jesus, of course, right? It was Jesus, the Son of God, whose role it is to represent, his role is to represent God to man. And so the old covenant was instituted with a meal between the Son of God and the elders of Israel. And here now we have the new covenant and it's instituted with a meal in a room between the son of God and the disciples, the apostles, the elders of the church. What mountain are they on? They're on a mountain. I mean, we can't forget that as we think about them in Jerusalem, they're actually on a mountain as this new covenant is instituted. You know what mountain it is? Mount Moriah. Does that ring a bell in your hearts and minds? That's the mountain where Abraham brought Isaac and he was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice as God had instructed him. And God stopped him as he raised the knife to take his son's life. God, God said, hold on, hold on. I will provide myself a lamb. And there Abraham looked and caught in the thicket was a ram. And he took it and he sacrificed it. Jesus is here on Mount Moriah. That's the incredible picture. One of the things that we kind of sometimes miss Mount, Mount Moriah is the place where this was instituted. It's the place where the place of the skull is, where Jesus was crucified. Mount Moriah is the temple mount. All right there, one mountain, God fulfilling this picture that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And so the covenant that Jesus instituted, a covenant in his blood, is a treaty between God and his people. It's a treaty that Jesus mediated and he put into place with the shed blood 
of himself, his own shed blood. You know, when we think about the Lord's Supper, what we're participating in is a picture of the new covenant relationship that we have with God. It's an act of remembrance where we look back, we, we remember the cross, we remember what Jesus did so that we can have relationship with our Father in heaven. But also we, as we remember that, we also remember something else. It's something that we're to look forward to, that he's coming again. That he's going to come for us. And it's interesting that Jesus instituted this supper and, and he said, you're going to eat the bread that represents my body and then you'll take the cup. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm taking the Lord's Supper, I kind of think, why don't we do the bread first? Like, it seems to me like it should be the cup first. Do you ever think that? I totally wonder that sometimes. You know, it's interesting that Jesus said bread first, then the cup. The cup represents his blood that washes away our sin. Shouldn't it be the cup first? You know, wash away my sin, Jesus, and then you come into me. But it's, it's not that way. Jesus instituted the bread and then the cup. Essentially, he said, I will come. He, essentially, he's saying this. I will come to you as you are. You invite me in. And the blood of my sacrifice will cleanse you of your sin. You know, you think about people. I have this mentality sometimes, all of us do. That often we think, I got to clean myself up. I got to like clean myself up so that I can come into the presence of God. You know, I need to get this in order and this in order. I blew it in this area. So when I get this sorted out, then I'll come into the presence of God. Then I'll invite Jesus to come into my heart. But it's bread first. Then the cup. He comes in and then he cleans us up. You know, we say this. Salvation is not perspiration. <laughs> I don't have to sweat. I don't have to strive. I don't have to work. I invite the son of God in and he comes and by his grace, he cleans the house up. You know, I've had this thing stuck in my head lately. It's just this. Trying harder doesn't work. Do you know that in the kingdom of God? You know, just trying harder won't work. It won't work. What's, what's the solution? It's always, no, I, I, I come to Jesus and I invite him into whatever that area is. And when he comes into it, he begins the cleaning. There's no trying harder on my part. That, that just blows up. That just blows up because the son wants me to know that I can't do it without him. It's his blood and his power that's going to clean me up. Amen? It's grace, a gift, Jesus in us, the hope of glory. Verse 30, it says this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. <coughs> the hymn they would have sung is called the Halal. That's what was sung at, it just means the praise. That's what was sung at the Passover meal. And it was actually, song, it's Psalm 116, Psalm 117, and Psalm 118. I thought it was really cool that two weeks ago, Brian showed up here, hasn't been a part of the gospel of Matthew. And where does he go? Psalm 118. You think about the things that Brian shared with us two weeks back. Those are the things the disciples sang with Jesus after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. They sang Hosanna to the son of David, which comes from Psalm 118. They, they, they sang the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. This is all from Psalm 118. That's what they sang, that, that hymn. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives where there was a, a garden, a private garden where Jesus could be with his disciples in the midst of a crazy bustling city and they could have quiet time and they could have a place for prayer. Uh, the garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. I guess this is as they're doing the walk to the garden. You will all fall away because of me uh, this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah chapter 13, a prophecy that re referred to him personally. Verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, 
Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You got to love Peter. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You can't hear Peter, not me, Lord. I mean, those guys, yeah, but I'm the rock, man. You know, I'm Peter. They can all fall away, but you can count on me. Solid. Next verse, it says this, Jesus said to him though, truly I tell you, this very night, even before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Then Jesus went with them to the place that is called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane uh, means oil press. It means crushed. It means crushed. An oil, in an oil press, olives are crushed and they're, they're broken and they're squashed and they're ground up so that the oil can be removed from uh, the fruit. Now, last week we talked about oil quite a bit. Oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. See, before the Holy Spirit could be poured out, first Jesus had to be crushed. He had to be pressed. He had to be broken. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus felt the, the crushing and the heaviness and the burden of our sin coming upon him. You know, the victory of the cross actually happened in Gethsemane. I mean, really, when you, when you think about the story of the cross, victory was already won here in this garden, as we're going to see. In the Garden of Eden, remember the Garden of Eden? Where man's relationship with the father was broken due to Adam's rebellion? the first Adam's rebellion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, man's relationship with the Father was restored through the submission of the second Adam to the Father's will, the last Adam, sorry. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam, he tried to hide from God, hide from the purposes and the plans and the presence of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam surrendered his life to the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done. In the Garden of Eden, you remember the Garden of Eden that the scripture says that when God closed it up so that no one could enter the presence uh, and have access to the tree of eternal, uh, eternal life, that there was a sword placed in front of the entrance to that garden, a flashing sword that blocked the presence, and it kept man out from the presence of God. But it's interesting that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said this, put the sword away to Peter. Put the sword away, and he healed a man. Which is the picture of what he was, the sword was being put away, and man would be healed through what Jesus Christ would do. The presence of God would be opened. Again, verse 36 says this, then, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Matthew doesn't tell us, what the other gospels tell us, that G Jesus, the sorrow was so great as you know that his Perspiration became like drops of blood, great drops of blood, that his blood vessels were usually bursting in his skin as there was the pressure and the burden of sin coming upon him, sensing the wrath of God. And so as Jesus went into that, that place to, to pray, he took with him further into the garden, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. They're the same three men that have the privilege of going with Jesus up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? Matthew chapter 17. Those three men saw Jesus in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah standing there. And they suggested, we should stay here, Jesus, on this mountain forever. Why don't we build some huts, you know? We'll build a little hut for, for Elijah and Moses for you and we can just stay here on this mountain forever. And they, they saw Jesus and the height of his glory and now Jesus takes those same three men and they come into the valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is with him at the foot of the Mount of Olives. From mountaintop to 
Valley Garden. And now they're going to see and experience the true victory of God. Jesus said to them, my, my, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Why was Jesus feeling that way? Well, we, we get it. I mean, he, he understood and knew what was in front of him. When he went through with this, this plan to pay for the sins of the world, the wrath of God was being poured out upon him and he was going to die in our place. You know, in our minds, you know, sometimes we think about the price that Jesus prayed, paid for our salvation. And we think, well, maybe you think this. Just an afternoon, you know, like a little bit of time, a few hours on the cross, you know. And we fail to comprehend something that the scripture tells us. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain before the foundation of the world. It's incredible. In the Garden of Eden, a decision was made that resulted in separation. Man was separated from God as Adam made his decisions to choose sin. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, a, a decision was made that would result in salvation. And this was planned before the foundation of the world was laid. Jesus knew all along. You think about that, your concept of time. Jesus knew all along the price for salvation. You know, we think just an afternoon. No. For eternity, Jesus knew what he was going to do on that cross. See, the price that he paid for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins is incredible. He bore the wrath of God for us. I love verse 39. It just starts with something really simple, but it says this. And going a little further. That's Jesus. Always going a little further. Always a little, a little further. He didn't, he didn't stop at Gethsemane. He's going to take it further. All the way to Calvary to the place of the skull, to Golgotha. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, it's like Jesus is there. He's wrestling with the father. He's wrestling his will down. And maybe he asks, Lord, is there any other way? You know, what if they just go to church? What if they bring some canned goods at Christmas time and attend the Christmas Eve service and the Easter Sunday resurrection service? You know, what if they're just good people, Lord? What if, what if they would support missions and get behind this or that? Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, that's my request. But then Jesus says this, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's a prayer of faith. You know, it's been said that the key to prayer is not name it and claim it. You hear that saying, name it and claim it? The key to prayer is not name it and claim it. The key to prayer is request and rest. Request and rest. And that's the way Jesus prayed. Father, if possible, you lift this from me. That's my request. If possible, may this cup pass, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. On earth as it is in heaven, that's where I'll rest. That's my request, and that's where I'll rest. Look at verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You know, while, while in that place of prayer, wrestling with the father, Jesus just, I think, I mean, it's hard to say this. He grew in his comprehension, but he, he began to understand and receive confirmation that, yes, the father just reminded him, this is my will, that you be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that you be sacrificed so that man can come into 
relationship with me. Verse 43 tells us again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Now, can you relate to that? I can totally relate to these guys. I'm like, that would be me. I'd be sleeping in the garden is if I had been there with Jesus. You know, it's, it's amazing how you can just like do all sorts of things and feel fresh in life and your day's like going good and you're like rocking it. And then you like decide, yeah, I think I'll spend some time in prayer or like pick up my Bible. And then it's like just wave of sleep just begins to come. We can all relate with that, right? The enemy knows that there's power in prayer. He doesn't want us praying. I think even my own flesh, our flesh knows that there's power in prayer. It's like, no, don't pray. Be lazy. Go to sleep. You know, that's why often I like to go for a walk when I pray. You can't, you can't sleepwalk and pray. Oh, you know, I, uh, I'm reminded of the story. Uh, well, a couple stories I'll tell you really quick. I, I well, one first. Uh, friends that we knew growing up, some of you guys know them. There were a couple who met for the first time at an all-night prayer meeting. And uh, he was there and he was awake and, and, and praying and he saw this pretty girl at the altar all night long just seeking the Lord and, and he said, God, that's the kind of woman I want right there, you know? And, uh, and so at some point in time he met her and he told her the story and she said, I, I just have to be honest, I, I, I was sleeping there all night at that altar. <laughs> Jesus says this in verse 44. So leaving them again, he went, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. I mean, Jesus looks at the frailty of these guys, the humanity of these disciples. He says, man, sleep and take your rest later. And I remember a few years ago, we went to Winnipeg. We had a family wedding out there and we went and Lisa's just got like, She's from one of these massive families. Like she has a hundred cousins or whatever it is. Like it's just insane, right? So you go to Winnipeg and there's just like options for us to stay everywhere. And so we stay with one of her cousins. And one night I was hanging out with her and her husband. And it was like up and we were, we were hanging out and having a great time and talking about the things of the Lord. And before we know it, it's like two or three in the morning. And I'm like, man, I'm sorry. I'm like totally keeping you up. And he said something that stuck with me. He said this, you know, oh, no, this is awesome, he says. You know, nobody gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I slept more. I mean, we're having a good time. Don't worry about it. I thought, wow. Yeah, nobody gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I slept more. Sometimes I remind myself of that. I was telling Michael that when we uh, were in India and we're like sleep deprived and, you know, having a hard time. I said, look, let's just go out on the street and go hang out. Nobody gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I slept more. You know, the enemy is is plotting and, and he... He wants you to sleep more. You know, just think about it. You know, one of the things that you hear many great people, many great people in the kingdom of God, you know, they get to the end of their life and it's like, hey, what would you have done more of? You know, like if you could do it all over, what would you do more of? Like, would you read the Bible more? Would you preach more? What would you do? And, and there's a theme that I've heard when people are asked questions like that and they say this, you know what, I would have prayed more. I would have spent more time seeking the face of God in the place of prayer. I, I, I would have invested my life. You know, maybe instead of, you know, I, I read somewhere, you know, some great old preacher who like two hours a day in the Bible and an hour of prayer. He said, I would flip that. Two hours a day in prayer and an hour in the word of God. You know, the enemy's plotting. Plotting how to bring havoc in your home plotting how to bring havoc in your family, havoc in your marriage, in the lives of your kids, maybe in your ministry. He wants, to, he wants to bring havoc in your workplace, just stir up trouble for you. And I just want to give you this reminder from the word of God that, that the next time you have the opportunity, don't choose sleep over prayer. I don't say that to condemn you, but to remind you that the enemy is not sleeping. He's not sleeping. He's like planning and plotting and looking to seek, kill, and destroy. And prayer is, is not just so that we can lay our requests before the Lord, lay down our petitions before the Lord, but prayer is also, we see it's for protection. 
We can see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a hedge of protection around Jesus that was missing in the disciples' lives because he was praying and they were not. You know, when you pray, there's a hedge of protection that comes with it for your life. When you pray, there's a hedge of protection for your home. There's protection for your family. There's protection for your marriage. There's protection that God gives in the lives of your kids. He gives protection in your ministry. He gives protection in your workplace. As his church prays, he gives protection to his church. And that head, that same hedge of protection is not there when we're not seeking the Lord in the place of prayer. Jesus was facing temptation. He, he's, he's there in the crosses before him. But you know the beauty of Jesus is that in the moment of temptation, he didn't fail. In the moment of temptation, he didn't fail. Who failed that night? The disciples did. They were sleeping and he was praying. Jesus says, see, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We'll, we'll just close right there this morning but with those verses. But here's what I would say. Jesus could rise in the face of the betrayer because he had been kneeling before the face of the father. He could stand before his enemies because he had been on his knees before his father in heaven. It's interesting. The disciples, we know the deal. They scattered. I mean, with a little bit of conflict here, every one of them to the last took off. John's gospel tells us he was fleeing so hard that when they grabbed him, his clothes came off and he just kept going, running away naked. Jesus could rise because he had been kneeling. And you know, when I think about this text this morning and all that's in here, there's a, there's a lot in there and I feel like we're moving really fast, but let me give you just a few takeaways. The first one has to do with worship. Your worship. Your best worship comes out of your brokenness. And, it's, and it costs, you know, it, it costs to say, Jesus, in this brokenness, I'm just, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to choose to worship you. You know, many years ago, uh, Lisa and I had a, a friend, a pastor friend. He was a young guy, right the same age as us. They were like in their early 20s. And they crashed their vehicle and his wife, his wife was killed in the car accident. And I remember we went to the funeral and it was, there was, there was like a thousand people at this funeral. It was so devastating. And as the worship started, the whole congregation was seated and he stood up. He was in the front row and he just lifted his hands to heaven and he worshiped. And his brokenness, he worshiped. I don't think that was easy to do, but he, he made a choice in his heart. And I want to tell you this this morning. I think the word of God, the Holy Spirit would tell you this. Your worship is never a waste. Even when Judas is in your head, you could do something so more practical. Your worship is never a waste. The second takeaway for us this morning is this from the Lord's Supper. It's bread and then the cup. It's not trying harder. It's inviting Jesus into the middle of whatever you're facing. It's grace, not perspiration. You don't have to clean it up because trying harder won't work. You invite Jesus in and then you let him come by the power of his blood to just deal with whatever you're facing. He'll clean it up. And the last thing is this, prayer. I want to remind you, prayer is this. The prayer of faith is this. Request and rest. Request and, and rest because, you know, the truth is this. You won't get to the end of your life and say, I wish I slept more. <laughs> you won't. You won't get to the end of your life and say, I wish I slept more. But you probably will get there and you'll say this, if I could do it all over again, I would have spent more time in prayer. I would have spent more time praying. So I want to encourage you. Go to the place of prayer. Amen? God bless you guys this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. You guys come on up here. And uh, as they're coming, why don't you stand with me?
Lord, this morning, this morning, Jesus, we just thank you for your word. You're so good, Lord. You're so good. And uh, we thank you for the things that, that we see here in this text this morning. Lord, I imagine for some, it's hard to come to the table this morning. Maybe in their own brokenness, Lord, it's just even hard to participate in the Lord's Supper. And God, as they take that step of faith and come to the table this morning, Lord, I, just, I pray that you would meet them there, Lord. Lord, I thank you that as we come to the table, it's not the cup first and then it's the bread. No, Lord, it's the bread first and then the cup. You, you come into our situation and then by your power, you begin to work. And so, Lord, whatever we're facing this morning, whatever we're dealing with in life, right now in this moment, Jesus, we just invite you in. God, I was a fool for thinking I had to clean it up first. That I had to perspire, sweat, strive. Lord, by your grace, we just invite you into our situations, Lord. Our marriages, Lord, would you come and heal? Our health, Lord, we need your physical touch. Would you come and heal, Lord, spiritually for us? Maybe in some area of sin that we're battling, Lord. We invite you in and by the power of your blood to change us and to transform us. God, we ask that you would give us a heart for prayer. Increasingly, Lord, that we would seek your face. Thank you, Lord, that it's never a waste to seek your face. And so, Lord, give us strength for the place of prayer, we pray. Lord, this morning as we come to the table, we just ask your blessing upon it, God, that this would be a rich time of fellowship for each one of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.